Good morning, Chapel Hill. So I have some unsettling news that I need to share with you and solicit your prayers. Um, Pastor Ellis and his wife and the kids made their way back to England for a vacation, long overdue, and uh, went into the American embassy to uh, do what was supposed to be a routine renewal of their visa, and it was denied. Um, And uh, there is no appealing that denial. Uh, So at this point, we are working with our um, immigration attorneys and our denominational leaders, and I am very glad to be a member of the EPC. Jeff Jeremiah has been all over this. In fact, I heard from him earlier this morning, and uh, we're looking at the possible trip back to Washington, D.C. We're waiting to hear from the attorney about the next steps that we ought to or can take, but what it means is they will not be returning home next week when we expected. At the best, it would be weeks. It could be months, and we don't know if at all. Uh, so it really is a very uh, an unsettling and, and disturbing, as you can imagine, <laughs> a very disturbing piece of news. And uh, I would solicit your prayers. I mean that. I would solicit your prayers. If any of you have an angle into the State Department, I'd love to talk with you. And uh, I will obviously keep you apprised of this very disappointing uh, news. You, you should be aware that for the last six years, we've done everything we knew to be right in compliance with all of the visa work that was necessary. Uh, to make sure that we were doing this exactly right. And, of course, Ellis is an ordained pastor on our staff. Right now, we're looking at the possibility of having to terminate his employment uh, uh, in order to abide by this this change of situation. So it's a very, uh, very unsettling situation. When I received the news, those of you who know me well, and many of you do know that I can imagine that I was quite um, stressed out by this. But as quickly as I could... I returned back to the text that I preached last week in Romans 5. Remember, we came to what I call the so what passage in Romans. We have been justified by faith, Paul tells us. We have been pronounced clean in the in presence of Almighty God, not because of our own works. In fact, in, in spite of our, of our brokenness, in spite of our sin, God has pronounced us righteous. That's justified. And uh, that's the good news of the gospel. That's the incredible news that Paul is trying to bring forth in the book of Romans, and, uh, and yet uh, finally here we come in chapter 5 to the, but what difference does it make? The, the so what passage of, of Paul's letter, and we learn that there's a someday and a right now impact because we have been justified by faith. The someday impact is that someday we will stand in the presence of Almighty God. In all of his glory, we will be standing there unashamed, unharmed, unjudged, because we're clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And that's a wonderful thing, a wonderful hope, as Paul talks about it, an assurance that 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 awaits all who have received by faith this great gift. That's a good thing. But the fact is we have a life to live here first, right? And so the other, uh, the other impact that we discover is not just a someday, but a right now impact as well. Paul says that because of this righteous standing before God, we are able to face this life and its sufferings and its tribulations and its trials and its pressures and its injustices. We are able to face those because we believe in a God who takes and uses those to build our character to develop endurance, and ultimately to bring us to a place where, once again, we hope in God for all things, even when uh, hope seems, uh, seems crazy. And so I'm choosing, for that reason, I'm choosing to rejoice. That's the language he uses. Rejoice in our sufferings. 
I'm choosing to uh, believe that God is in control. I'm choosing to remember that this didn't catch God by surprise. He didn't look down there and say, oh my gosh, I didn't see that one coming. So if we really believe in a sovereign God who is powerful, then we must, right? We must believe that even this, which seems incredible, stupid, bureaucratic, whatever, it, it is not beyond the Lord's ability to take and work this. When we get to Romans 8 best chapter in the book, in my opinion. We're going to read that all things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Is there any doubt that Ellis and Rachel are called according to his purpose? So that will work for their good. It will work for our good as well. But how that's going to happen, we don't know. Obviously, we hope that the outcome of our prayers will be that they return to us, for we are not yet done with them. Um, But at any rate, we... um, we, we will pray God's will, God's purpose in our lives. So I thought that before we dive into the next part of chapter 5, that we would just recite that verse last, that I have been living in this week in a way that I never expected to be. Let's recite it together and let this be an affirmation of our trust in God. All right? So take a look. Here we go. We rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, And character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. So, Holy God, we really lean into the promise of that passage. We do so not by sight, for what we see is disturbing and unsettling, but by faith by confidence in your goodness, in your provision, in your power. Lord, we know that nothing happens apart from your permission, apart from your will. But we also know that sometimes the enemy is at work. So if this is one of those moments, if this is the moment when the enemy is trying to foil your, your plan, foil your, the work of your kingdom, then, then Jesus, in, the name, in your name, and by the power of your shed blood, we come against our enemy. We, we declare that he has no place in this, in, in, the, in the life of the whites, in this place, in this church, in this, in this work of your kingdom. He has no place here, and in the name of Jesus, we order you to leave us alone. And we, uh, we claim instead that your Holy Spirit will fill us anew with hope, peace, trust, and faith that the kingdom of God might be proclaimed both here and in England and in the American embassy and around your world. For we pray it through Christ our Lord. And all of God's people said, Amen. Amen. Last week I told you that Paul, in the very last verse that we just recited, introduces a, a new topic. It was a topic that had not been mentioned hitherto in the book of Romans. And suddenly uh, this appears. And it's not really a what, it's a who. Do you remember who that topic, who that person is that was mentioned for the first time? The Holy Spirit. Remember, for the first time, we are reminded of the Holy Spirit, the third member of the Trinity. We are told, as a matter of fact, that when we receive God's grace of uh, gift of, of faith and life and righteousness, it's not a what that we receive, it's a who that we receive. The, Holy, the very Spirit of Jesus, the, the Spirit of God who raised Christ up from death into life, that resurrection Spirit is now at work in our hearts. 
Paul says, transforming us from one degree of glory to another. Remember glory, the Shekinah, that radiant presence of God that we cannot even bear? Well, the very Spirit of God is at work transforming us one degree of glory to another till one day we will stand before him prepared, fitted for the, the heavenly places that God has called us to and redeemed us for. But actually, that's not the only place in that verse where Paul introduces a, a, a monumental new theme. There is another thing that Paul introduces for the first time that he has not talked about so far. I'm going to read it one more time, and I want to see if you can spot it. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So did you spot the other newcomer in the book of Romans, something he has not mentioned hitherto? No, we got the Holy Spirit. We did that one. There's one other. Love. Do you see that? God's love has been poured out into our hearts. Did you know that right up till now, Paul has not talked about the love of God in uh, the book of Romans? We've heard about God's wrath upon sin. We've heard about how God, the propitiating uh, sacrifice of Jesus, the sin sacrifice of Jesus on the cross, how his blood has made us clean and allowed us to stand in righteousness before God. We've heard about this justification by faith where we are declared righteous. We've heard all of those things. But for the first time now, we hear the reason for all of these other things that Paul has been telling us about. And it is the love of God. As, as John put in so famously in his third chapter, for God so Love the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not, but should have everlasting life. You are great Greek scholars. Do you remember the, the word? There are several words in Greek for love, but there is a supreme kind of love. What is that kind of love called in the Greek language? Agape. Say it together. Agape is that selfless, sacrificial love that God has shown to us. Jim Edwards, who's a professor, a retired professor at Whitworth and a friend of this church, a friend of mine, uh, his commentary means a lot to me. And in that, he, he writes this. He says, agape is not conditional love, love if. It is not earned love, love because of, but unwarranted love, love in spite of. You get that? Paul spent four chapters explaining the sacrifice of Jesus and why it was necessary. And now we discover the motivation behind that sacrifice. It's God's incredible, selfless, unconditional, undeserved love for us. Isn't it wonderful to say this? God loves us. Say it together. God, say God loves me. God loves me. Not everyone in the world believes that. Not even every religion believes it possible. But the great proclamation of the Christian gospel is that God loves you. Say, God loves me. One more time. God loves me. That is such a glorious assertion. And, and just in case the magnitude of this agape love is lost on us, Paul goes into a bit of an illustration in the next part of his passage. You can continue on in, in Romans chapter 5. He goes on, verse 6. For while we were still weak, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. On the night before Jesus was 
crucified, that he was sacrificed on a cross, the propitiation for us. The night before that, he gathered his 12 in an upper room and he shared his heart with them in what we have come to know as the upper, upper room discourse. And in the middle of that discourse, chapter 15, he pronounces these very familiar and very powerful words of, of a foreshadowing of what was about to come, which the disciples had no idea, he said, about what he was about to say. He said, greater love has no man than this, that a man laid down his life for his friends. You know that. It's a powerful assertion is. And of course, who, how, could you, how could you argue with that? What act can a person ha- offer to demonstrate their love for another uh, more powerful than the laying down of one's own life? And there are people that are sitting right next to you, likely, that you would be willing to take a bullet for, that you would be willing to, to, to step in front of the car for, to push. I mean, there, there are people right with you that you love, your family, your friends, for whom you would lay your life down. I'm sure that's true. This summer, we're going to be heading to, to Germany for this Reformation tour. I, this is, as you know, I, do, I love these, and I do a lot of them. I, the one that I did many years ago was a, a Scottish and English Reformation tour. And we were in London in a high-rise hotel early on in the trip. Most of us were down on the first floor in a classroom where I was teaching. But upstairs in the 11th floor was my wife, Rachel, and our very jet-lagged nine-month-old daughter, Rachel. Did I say my wife, Rachel? I'm... It's been a rough week. My wife, Cindy, and a very jet-lagged nine-month-old daughter, Rachel. So they were staying up there and trying to grab every moment of sleep that we could. As we drew near the end of the class downstairs, uh, suddenly the fire alarm went off. And, uh, and so everyone, of course, dashed for the, uh, the, the doors, every, everyone but one person. Um, I, I dashed for the stairs going up the other direction. And, uh, and I know you would tell me that's stupid. My firefighter friends would tell me that's stupid. But my wife was tired, exhausted, and I was afraid that she might not hear the alarm. And so I was going up to get them. And when I got to the fourth floor landing, I smelled smoke. So I knew this was no, uh, no drill. And so I redoubled my efforts to make my way up against the crowd of people that were coming down the stairs. At one point, a hotel employee tried to stop me. It did not work well for him. I continued on up to the 11th floor. I burst through the doors. I ran down the hall because we were at the very end and I put my key in and I opened the door and to my great relief, the room was empty. So I grabbed my computer. (laughs) Why not? Back outside when we finally got downstairs, two of our ladies of our group chided me for my stupidity for running back in And perhaps they were right, but you know what? Not a single man in my group had anything like that to say. And you know why, don't you? Because every one of them was thinking, if it was my wife, if it was my kid, I'd be up there in a heartbeat and you would not be able to stop me. There's something reckless about love that sends you into harm's way to save those who are precious to you. Maybe something even stupid about love that throws caution to the wind and, and plunges in to save the object of its affection. And you dads know what I'm talking about, don't you? And by the way, if the shoe was on the other foot, is there a mama bear in this room who would not be willing to do the same thing for her kids? Maybe not her husband, but... (laughs) 
Yeah, you run up there and save him. He's up there somewhere. <laughs> but for their kids, absolutely. Why should these actions of a loving parent be a surprise to us? Love does surprising and reckless and seemingly irrational things. Greater love has no man than this, that a man would lay down his life for his friends. Who would disagree with Jesus on that? Well, as it turns out, Paul does. Uh, Paul, it's almost as if he was saying, Lord, I, I hate to... I hate to disagree with you, you being God and all, but, um, but I think there is a, a greater love still than this. The love that sacrifices for family, for friends, that is a great love, but it's not the greatest. And Paul goes on to, to lay out what is an even greater love in verse 8 of chapter 5. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's agape love. Jesus was speaking of giving our life for friends. Paul concedes that maybe someone might be willing to give their life for a a righteous person or a good person. But God's love, we discover, goes further still. And notice in verse 6 that Paul has a couple of things to say about our condition when Christ was willing to die for us. First of all, he said, while we were still weak. Another translation of that word is helpless. While we were helpless, at the right time, Christ died for us. And Paul has already made it abundantly clear. If he's made nothing else clear in our study in Romans, he's made it abundantly clear that we are helpless. We are absolutely powerless to do anything about sin's grip on our lives. Benjamin Franklin once wrote in Poor Poor Richard's Almanac, God helps those who help themselves. Heard that before? We Americans love that idea. But it isn't Christian. It's deist. Franklin was a deist. I think a lot of Americans today are deists, frankly. We, We love that idea. God helps those who help themselves. Not only is it not Christian, it is the opposite of Christian. God doesn't help those who help themselves, Paul says. God helps those who could not help themselves. The helpless, the weak, the desperate, those are the one God helps. I'm not quite done with my hotel story. Turns out that someone had lit a fire in a laundry chute. They got it put out. They got the smoke cleared. They, They brought us all back into into the hotel, into our rooms, and, and everything was fine. The next morning, we were checking up out of the hotel, and I got up, and I went to the door of our room after we had packed, turned the doorknob, and it fell off in my hand. And I could not get it back in, and I could not get the door open. And uh, we, we, we were trapped. I had to call the front desk and have them send someone to get us out. And do you know what I was thinking? You do know what I was thinking. What if the fire had been more serious? What if Cindy had gone to open the door that previous night and the knob had fallen off in her hand then? They would have been trapped. There was nothing she could have done. Only someone from the outside would have been able to save them. We were trapped, beloved. We were trapped by our sin, by our brokenness. And there was no saving ourselves. We couldn't have done anything about it even if we wanted to. We were helpless. 
And then here's the second piece of our condition. We didn't want to. We didn't want to. While we were helpless, Christ died for the ungodly. Who did Christ die for? The ungodly. The unfriend of God. Who had turned our backs on God. We decided we didn't need God. We were happy with our idolatry. Paul kind of states it as a thesis and then he expands, he elaborates. He says, maybe someone would be willing to die for a righteous man. Not very likely. Possibly for a good person someone would be willing to die. But he goes on. But God shows his incredible love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were the unfriends of God, the enemies of God. While we wanted nothing to do with him, while we worship the idols of this life, it was in that condition that Christ died for us. God didn't look down on the world and say, hmm, who is at least trying to love me? Who is it that's at least trying to follow my rules? Who is it that is at least trying to be my friend? I'll send my son to die for them, but to hell with the rest of them. No. How does God prove the greatness of his love? By sending his son to die for the very people who hated him. For the very people who turned their backs on him. Indeed, for the very people who spiked him to a tree. God shows his love for us. And that while we were still his enemies, his unfriends, his sinners, Christ died for us. This has been a particularly sleazy week in the news, and that's saying a lot these days. More and more accusations are being made of the sexual nature against public figures. And you can almost feel the the quivering coming from D.C. and other places uh, as other public figures are thinking about humiliating photos in their past and episodes from their past that they are praying to a God they've never acknowledged before will not come to light. But before we shake our finger at Al Franken or Roy Moore, may I just ask this? Is there anyone here who doesn't have stuff hidden in the junk closet of their own lives? Stuff that were to be pulled out and put on display would humiliate us? I do. There are things in my past of which I am ashamed. Who among us would like a spotlight shined on our slimiest and stupidest moments? But Paul says, even under the spotlight of divine scrutiny, even when God saw us in those slimy and shameful moments, it was exactly then that God said, I still love you. And I am still going to send my son to die for you. Amazing love. And the result of that love we discover leads to yet another new idea that Paul introduces for the first time in the next couple of verses. Listen to this passage. Listen for the word. It repeats itself three times. Since therefore we have now been justified, there's that word, by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Did you hear the new word? What is it? Reconciliation. Reconciliation is a language of friendship. Reconciliation is is the idea of former 
friends who are brought back together again, who are restored in relationship. Earlier, I reminded you of the words that Jesus shared with his disciples in that upper room. Greater love has no man than this, that a man would lay down his life for his friends. Do you know what the very next four words are in the Gospel of John? You are my friends. Doesn't it delight you to hear God say those words to you? You are my friends. We were alienated from God by our sin, and yet through the death of Jesus, we are reconciled. We are restored to friendship with God. God is your friend. Isn't that wonderful? But wait, there's more. Not only were we made friends, God's friends through the death of Jesus, God pours out his blessings on us through his life. His resurrection. Listen to the logic of Paul in verse 10. He says, For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, now that we are friends, shall we be saved by his life. When was it that God sent Jesus to die for us? When we were his enemies. We became God's friends as a result of that death. And now if he was willing to send his son to die for us when we were his enemies, how much more is God willing to bless us and work out his salvation in our lives now that we are his friends? Last week we celebrated Veterans Day. Let me ask you a World War II question. What was the distinction of being our defeated enemies? Did we crush them? Did we demoralize them? Did we eliminate their culture and take over their land and all of their resources? Did we? Far from it. When surrender came, when peace finally came, not only did we stop fighting, we poured billions of dollars and millions of man-hours rebuilding those countries that had attacked us to the point that now our defeated World War II enemies are in a better economic state than our allies are. The Japanese loved Douglas MacArthur. God doesn't want just to make peace with us through the death of his son and be done with it. He wants to reclaim us as his friends and pour his resurrection blessings into our lives. This whole mess with the whites is particularly painful because they long to be back. They long to come. This is now their home. They want to come home, be with their church family and friends. I heard it in their voices when I spoke to them yesterday. They long to be returned to their Chapel Hill family. The problem is it appears to be little that they can do. The denial letter said that there is no appeal possible. And so for now, they are trapped. Our best hope at this point is a hero. An intercessor. Someone who, from the state department, who can step in and say, I don't care what the law seems to say. I want these kids back home. That's what they need right now. That's what we're praying for. While we were helpless, while we were separated from God, while we were on the wrong side of God's law with no possible appeal, our hero stepped in. And offered his life for ours and said, I want them back home. So that we might become the friends of God. 
Who here doesn't want to be a friend of God? Who here doesn't want the resurrection of blessings of Christ to be poured into our life to make the dead things come to life? Dead in conscience, dead relationships, dead in futures, dead guilt. Who doesn't want that restored to life and a hope? Only a hero can do that. And what Paul says is, he has. Your hero has made you a friend of God. Will you believe that? Let us pray. What wondrous love is this, O my soul, O my soul. But wondrous love is this that would send a beloved son to die for the very ones who would kill him so that we might be reconciled, so that we might be called a friend of God. For so we are. Thank you, Jesus, for making us your friend. If you are here today and you are not a friend of God, if you do not know the friendship of God, if you do not believe that God loves you, if you have not experienced his resurrection life, restoring that which is dead within you, then you probably haven't received the gift that Christ has to offer. You probably have not said yes to this gracious, incredible, crazy, irrational, agape love of God. And if that is you, I just want to ask you to pray right now with me in silence. Dear God, thank you for loving me. I never realized it. I want to be your friend. I don't want to be your enemy. And I receive the gift of Jesus, the gift that makes my sins clean and that restores my soul. I receive that gift and I will follow him because I want to be your friend too. If you... Holy God, would you hear that prayer from the heart of those who have been dabbling on the edges of religion that every person here might know what it means to be loved by you, restored to relationship with you, reconciled with you. Everyone here will know what it means to be a friend of God. We offer up these prayers and we continue to lift to you our dear whites. Would you please bring a hero to set them free? and bring them home. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.